Hello and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan in Chennai, your host for today. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership or RCEP, a trade bloc of 15 countries including the 10 ASEAN members, China, Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand, was signed on November 15th without India, which was part of the long-running negotiations until we withdrew last year. While the agreement leaves the door open for India to join, that prospect appears unlikely for now. The day after the signing, External Affairs Minister S. Jai Shankar criticized past trading agreements for de-industrializing some sectors and not being advantages to India. What does the launch of RCEP mean for India, for India's economy and its regional ambitions? Joining us today to help make sense of these questions are Professor R. Ramkumar of the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai and Professor Amitendu Palit, who is a senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Anand. Thank you, Anand. If I can come to you first, uh, Professor Palit. Uh, you are sitting in Singapore, uh, in many ways at the heart of this trading region that RCEP has now created. So from where you're looking at, uh, can you just give us your thoughts? What does RCEP mean for the region? How is it being seen in Singapore? And how are people looking at the fact that uh, one of the region's biggest economies, India, is is not part of it? Anant, uh, I think the first point to note is that, look, you know, this year is very exceptional for not just the whole world, but also the Asia-Pacific and Southeast Asia and the entire uh, RCEP geography, if I can describe it that way, because this is for the first time in the last six decades that developing Asia as a whole is experiencing an economic recession. Now, this was not on the cards at the time when India decided to walk out of RCEP about a year ago. But today, after the onset of COVID, and the fact that the region as a whole, practically all RCEP economies have slid into recession, there are reports coming out of huge contraction in labor markets, domestic labor markets across the region. The RCEP is being looked at as a pact of hope. It is being looked at as an agreement which will allow the Southeast Asian economies to at least get a forum or a platform to come together and recharge their economic policies in a constructive and convergent fashion with the support of non-ASEAN members, which include two of the world's largest economies, China and Japan. Having said that, I think there is also this view in the region that while the deal is finalized, it still has to be ratified. And that ratification process is going to take some time because that's going to go through the individual country ratification processes. And sometimes we are not yet sure about what exactly will be the minimum ratification criteria. I would assume that a majority of economies, a minimum majority will need to sign up, get them ratified, or a number of economies with at least 85 to 90% share of the total block need to ratify. But on the whole, it's being looked at as a hopeful development. I think there is a sense of regret 
that India is not a part of the pact because by having India in the pact, it would have really made it even bigger than what it is right now. Right now itself, it is the largest free trade agreement in the world. But I think there is also this recognition that, look, India probably has had its own reasons for not being a part of this agreement, and those reasons need to be respected. Right, we will uh, come to those uh, reasons, and, and what we are trying to do in this podcast is try and understand India's position uh, and why it is that uh, it decided for a number of reasons uh, to not join RCEP. Um, according to a government note that was issued last year, when India officially said it was going to withdraw, some of the outstanding issues uh, that India mentioned, which, had, which it had raised uh, in many rounds of talks, uh, were the major trade deficits it had with some of the RCEP members, starting with China, uh, a lack of assurances that India received on market access, uh, as well as in terms of uh, how these economies would open up to services. Uh, Professor Ramkumar, if I can come to you, uh, I think you've written quite extensively about uh, the impact that such an agreement would have had on India's economy, uh, especially uh, including the agricultural sector and the dairy sector. Before we come to those specifically, uh, what was uh, your impression in terms of India announcing the decision last year? And on the whole, uh, do you see sense in why Delhi had to take that step? Uh, Anand, I think yes. I do not say this as a blanket statement on all trade agreements, but for the RCEP in a particular context. There are two contexts that I would like to bring to your attention. The first, the WTO is in, uh, currently in a state of stalemate. After 1995, while developing countries were forced to reduce their export subsidies and import tariffs in agriculture, developed countries refused to reciprocate. As a result, after the failed Doha round, uh, most countries of the world do not see the WTO as an instrument to harvest the gains from trade anymore. In its place, they have preferred regional trade agreements or bilateral free trade agreements. Examples are the India-ASEAN trade agreement of 2010, the India-South Korea agreement of 2010, and the India-Japan agreement of 2011. So the RCEP agreement essentially represents an escalation of these steps towards a larger umbrella agreement in the Asia-Oceania uh, region. So that's the first context, the failure of the WTO and people looking at other revenues for trade. Secondly, the TPP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which was to uh, envelop a set of countries to the west and east of Pacific Ocean, has been declared or had been declared at that time dead by the Trump administration. Uh, emerging countries like China saw the TPP as signaling the entry of USA into economic relations in Asia and Oceania. Thus, it was in China's interest that the RCEP was formulated as a response to the TPP. So with the demise of the TPP, the Oceanic countries, Australia, New Zealand, etc., they also began to take interest in the RCEP because this was the new avenue that was uh, available to them. So uh, these two contexts are there. But if you look at India's experience with the already signed free trade agreements with the ASEAN group, South Korea and Japan, you will see that India's trade deficit with these uh, countries or groups rose very sharply uh, during this period. Uh, data is available uh, if you look at, say, 2011 and 2019 in comparison. India's trade deficit with ASEAN rose from about $5 billion to some $22 billion. 
uh, our trade deficit with Japan rose from $4 billion to about $8 billion, with Korea about $8 billion to $12 billion. So, uh, and remember with China, <clears throat> even without any free trade agreement, uh, <laughs> India's trade deficit is China, which was about $4 billion or so in 2004 or five, is now about uh, $50 billion. So in some uh, recent free trade treaties have led to a net rise of imports into India without concomitant increase in exports. Now, whose fault is it is, is a different question. But the experience is that there was a burgeoning uh, trade deficit with other free trade agreements coming in. So in any democratic country, trade packs that are likely to affect the livelihoods of people are usually discussed widely in the public domain. Uh, however, in the case of RCEP in India, we did not have the luxury of an official document stating what India was planning to concede. Secrecy was maintained at all stages. All we had were some leaked drafts of discussion texts from uh, countries like Japan, South Korea, etc. And these drafts showed that RCEP covered a wide range of issues and that the concessions demanded by the treaty were in some sense of great concern uh, to India. Uh, to begin with, I'm not, I'm not going to get into the details, but just to uh, flag one or two issues here, the agreement demanded that India should reduce uh, all, uh, the import tariffs on more than 90% of the commodity lines to absolute zero. Uh, you know, that is quite different from WTO even, because, well, the WTO allowed a country to fix tariffs up to a certain bound level. Uh, and then there's something called the applied tariff that is applied, uh, which is uh, usually uh, lower than that. The RCEP bound countries to uh, reduce that level to something like zero within next 15 years. Uh, if you take dairy products, where India had a major concern, uh, the average applied tariff was about 34 to 35% in India, which was to come to zero in about uh, 15 years. And that obviously was a matter of great concern for India. Uh, the second aspect covered by the RCEP was, for example, on intellectual property rights. Uh, you know, India had fought a historic battle during the WTO negotiations to preserve its uh, right to socially regulate drug patents uh, of multinational companies. Today, India is a leading global supplier of uh, cheap generic drugs to poor patients across the world. However, the RCEP was threatening to undo some of these gains uh, India had uh, in the pharmaceutical sector. It allowed companies to extend the length of their patents to beyond 20 years. It also allowed them to widen the scope of pa uh, patents uh, through things like uh, data exclusivity. Uh, that is, clinical trial data of patented drugs would not be available in the public domain until the patent validity uh, was over. So if generic drug makers uh, uh, had to apply for an approval in the interim, uh, they could not make use of the earlier clinical trial data. They will have to present either new data, which would only either delay their release or increase the cost. And, and there were many issues like this. For example, issues were related to the investor state dispute settlement mechanism, uh, uh, the demand to privatize many public services like education, health, power, water, waste management, etc. So these were all uh, major issues of concern uh, for India. So this is the larger context of our discussion today. I think the Indian foreign minister's speech, which you cited in your introduction, was quite significant in wow. this regard. He spoke about the distinction between having a choice, as in trade, finance, and mobility, and not having a choice, hmm. climate change, terrorism, pandemics, etc. 
and he said the question of whether we should globalize or not is uh, is to create a false choice according to him and the question was of negotiating an optimal engagement with the world i think it's a very interesting formulation wow. he put out uh, and that's a democratic choice for a country and india i think did fairly well to leverage it last year when it decided not to enter the rcep Well, Professor Pallet, looking at India's other free trade agreements, uh, this is something that I've heard a lot as well. Uh, that uh, people are making the argument that, for whatever reason, uh, I think uh, Professor Ram Kumar said it correct. If you leave aside for a second, whose fault? Who, who's to blame for lack of competitiveness? It's a reality that, for whatever reason, uh, these FTAs haven't. Uh, perhaps in the view of officials in delhi have benefited our partners uh, more than it benefited us whether or not we made the most of it we can look at why that is but would you agree with that assessment that uh, our experience with the ftas that we have uh, would lead us to conclude that uh, all things considered we are better staying out of the rcep anand if that is the logic then we should not get into any ftas if deficit is the criteria to go by then out of india's top 20 trade partners we have surplus with barely 3 or 4 i mean one of them is the united states of america that's why as far as india is concerned there is no opposition as such in principle to a fta with the us but a deficit based integration with the world of trade is actually a trumpian world view and i'm not exactly sure whether that should lead us to an understanding of the assessment of fts because simply look i completely agree with the statistics there is nothing wrong with the statistics the question is why are we importing so much from asean japan korea and china mm. if one looks at china as i have repeatedly argued 75% of the imports from china on machinery on bulk drugs on chemicals on other equipment are stuff that are not available in india in sufficient amount and at competitive prices again if this is a situation which wasn't existing well the imports would not have been necessitated now i want to put this argument the other way there is this view that imports from china would have flooded Right, India entered RCEP. Haven't they already flooded the country? Much without RCEP, but why? Look, I think that is a point which we should seriously consider. And secondly, you know, I think there is a certain degree of misconception with our uh, with respect to the RCEP. The RCEP actually given by global FTA standards is a fairly low quality and shallow FTA because. it is an asean centric fta and asean ftas usually avoid a large number of controversial subjects they touch upon certain subjects but they don't go into the depth because it's not just india which doesn't have the wherewithal of getting into tough negotiating issues like competition policy a country like malaysia would clearly avoid it a country like cambodia would clearly avoid it and asean has always traditionally followed a path of harmony and sticking to the lowest common denominator it is very unlike the united states or european union driven ftas which are far more ambitious modern and capable of absorbing new generation trade issues so i think when one looks ultimately at the rcep draft 
I think there will be a sense of deja vu that what exactly were we worried about? I mean, when this question of dairy, say, for example, comes in, you see, dairy is a sector which India had sufficient leverage and negotiating space to actually keep out of the agreement for itself. RCEP allows those conditions. That's the ASEAN centrality. My simple question, Anand, here is two. One, why did we stay engaged in RCEP? for nine years. What benefits were we visualizing? A. B. Let's forget ASEP. I think one of the main reasons for not getting into ASEP right now vis-a-vis -vis the time when we walked out is the China factor. Correct. The China factor, which is the prominent geopolitical factor, will not allow us to get into any FTA where you are a part of China. Having said that, historically, we are a part of China in the Asia-Pacific Trade Agreement or the Bangkok Trade Agreement from 1978. You know, that's a trade agreement which has India, China, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and a couple of other countries. But that's a very narrow preferentially. The question is that, okay, if you leave out the China part and you take up the other factors for which India did not join RCEP, those are the same factors that are going to influence any FTA decisions that India get into. Opening up the dairy sector is going to be as critical a sensitive a subject if one negotiates with the US. And that has become a tough subject. Data rules are going to be a factor there. So my point, simple point over here is that, look, if as a country we are looking to push the GDP up, we are looking to expand the size of the Indian economy, the clear given is that we need much greater shares of the global market. And those shares can come either from export of goods, export of services, or a combination of both. And I think where we missed the bus is that RCEP could have actually obtained us those investments, which would have been necessary for the country to induce exports. Today, which of the Indian domestic industries are actually in a position to put in large-scale investments? We are talking about making huge number of vaccines. Where's the infrastructure for storing vaccines? Where's the infrastructure for building data centers and servers? We need to get investments. And it is only through agreements. Forget about trade agreements, but there has to be some sort of an agreement. There has to be a bilateral investment agreement. There has to be some sort of an economic pact or a partnership through which investments must come. And if that is our view, that we will go into FTAs only with the objective of maximizing our exports, let's not forget the fact, however competitive we become, Countries that are part of a preferential trade agreement will always get preferential access in each other's markets, and we won't. That gap between a preferential access and a MFN access as determined by WTO will always remain. It might be a 3% tariff gap, but we need to overcome that by increasing our domestic competitiveness. And again, let me allude to this fine. Competitiveness is not a static factor. We might try to improve competitiveness, but so are other countries engaged right. in the effort. So I think. In that case, we need to take a very clear view about what is our approach to trade. If today we take a view that, look, our approach to trade will be determined by geopolitics. Oh. We are only going to enter into those trade agreements where our national interests are maximum and we get a holistic combination of national security interest and economic interest, then it's fine. Oh. But then one cannot have a one-way street. You 
you cannot engage with the united states and expect them to give you back the gsp for indian gems and jewelry exports unless they get something in return so if i could put that to you uh, professor ramkumar in terms of uh, this it's a kind of i think uh, as uh, professor palit says it's kind of a chicken and egg in terms of competitiveness and opening up the economy uh, the idea that you can protect your domestic industries forever is probably one that's it's going to be difficult to sustain uh, but on the other hand where do we go from here in terms of if our track record in the last 10 15 years tells us that staying competitive is going to be a very very difficult challenge uh, in this region what's your view on how does india approach this you did mention the external affairs minister's speech uh, where he said that our recent agreements hadn't really helped us in fact uh, the opposite had made us deindustrialize uh, to me as well the first thing that came to my mind when i read the speech was trumpian but uh, what does it tell you uh, professor ramkumar in terms of where uh, india is likely to go in terms of its policies and how it looks at trade agreements and how do we resolve uh, this almost contradiction in terms of making ourselves more competitive at home while confronting our relationships with other countries so anat i broadly agree with what professor pilot said a little while back uh, but with a minor uh, disagreement that uh, if we are not looking at uh, reducing trade deficits through ex- increasing exports then how is it that free trade agreements are going to lead to your overall economic growth unless you are imports of goods are largely of the intermediate goods nature as from china which will lead to an expansion of production within your country which you could later re-export from your country uh, uh, and have an export oriented growth pathway that's a different question altogether but in the case of major questions that were discussed in the midst of the rcep debate one major uh, issue was was related to dairy professor pilot mentioned that there is there was a possibility that india could have uh, uh, bargained to keep dairy out of the picture uh, in the rcep agreement but uh, at least as far as i know that option was not open uh, to india at that point of time it would, if it was open i'm in, uh, i'm happy to change my opinion on that point uh, but the whole question of uh, of uh, dairy is uh, first is of course of tariffs which i mentioned we would have had to reduce a 35% applied tariff to about zero over 10 to 15 years and the more important question here was related to the livelihoods of our small uh, milk producers you know india as you know is an amazing example of how small producers can be mobilized through cooperatives to achieve self sufficiency in milk production as shown by operation flood uh, you know india's dairy sector provides livelihood to about uh, 70 million households and a key feature of uh, india's dairy sector growth is the predominance of small producers so if you take 2017 uh, the average herd size of a dairy farm was something like uh, close to 190 in the united states or 355 in oceania but it was just two uh, in india uh, yet due to operation flood after the 60s india's contribution to world milk production rose from 5% in 1970 to about 20% uh, which is today so as a result india is largely self sufficient in milk production and it does not import or of course export milk in any significant uh, quantity at the same time some of the major players in the global milk trade are in the rcep region 
something like half of the global trade of milk happens within the RCEP region. And that's not because of India, because Australia and New Zealand are the major producers and China imports something like 30% of its milk consumption from uh, the uh, uh, from Australia and New Zealand. That, that's what makes the RCEP region uh, so important for uh, milk. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, Australia and New Zealand, which were deprived of the lucrative markets in the United States after the demise of the TPP, had a deep interest in the RCEP agreement as well. So there were different uh, uh, forces at play trying to get a larger share of the pie. And in, te- in terms of dairy, India was really in a disadvantaged position, very clearly. Uh, now, uh, that, uh, is an, that is one major aspect related to uh, dairy. Uh, now, if you look at one more point related to dairy, a large number of mu- multinational companies like Nestle or Danone or Lactalis or Fonterra had o- have already set shop in India uh, in the in the milk business, and at present these firms are forced to buy milk from Indian farmers. That's because you have an applied tariff of close to thirty four to thirty five percent, and this applied tariff uh, would have fallen to zero if the RCEP had come to come into effect, and it would have been much more profitable for these firms to import milk from New Zealand or Australia rather than buy it from the Indian farmers. And there are calculations that are made by Amul uh, in this regard. Uh, Amul calculates that the export price of skim milk powder uh, from New Zealand is about 150 rupees per kilogram, while the domestic price in India of the same uh, skim milk powder is about 300 rupees per kilogram. Uh, So as a result, the average dairy farmer of India, who currently receives something like 30 rupees per litre for milk, would have uh, ended up receiving something like 19 or 20 rupees per litre for milk if things had uh, gone on as planned in the agreement. So that is the key worry that India had. Uh, And this was a very important factor because even for the American dairy sector, the entry of Australian and New Zealand dairy firms into the TPP was a major issue of concern. Uh, In fact, there is a major anti-Fonterra movement in the United States, among the United States farmers, uh, because they do not want these companies to come into their market. So so I think there are legitimate fears in sectors like dairy. And uh, remember, if there are 70 million dairy households in India, the corresponding number is about 10,000 in the New Zealand in New Zealand or about 6,000 in Australia. So we are talking about a large sector of our population. And just finally, to come to the point that you mentioned on whether uh, the approach of the government to trade agreements is getting it right or not, I think uh, uh, one uh, major issue here is whether India can grow in industrial production given its current level of competitiveness. The answer is clearly no. The answer is clearly no because of a large number of historic structural reasons related to how Indian economy developed over the last few decades. So uh, there's a problem of low skills, which is a derivative of the low levels of education advancement that you have in this country. You have poor levels of public investment, particularly in infrastructure. You have a lack of emphasis on scientific research. Uh, And, you know, simply speaking about cultural chauvinism doesn't fetch us growth all the time. Uh, So we need very focused policy to improve competitiveness in Indian industry over a decade or a period like a decade. And then India would be in a much better position to bargain better in such agreements. So I'm not not in any way closing the door on any engagement with the globe and basically saying we should get our competitiveness right before we plunge into some of these uh, free trade agreements. That's the point that I wanted to make.
Well, thank you both. It's been a fascinating discussion. I think one with uh, no easy answers. Uh, and I think that it's going to be a question India will have to confront more and more going forward, uh, which I think RCEP has brought a lot of these questions out. Thank you, Professor Ram Kumar and Professor Palit for joining us today. You're welcome. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.